Welcome to Filmstrip. These podcasts are spoiler-filled as we discuss the plots, characters, and themes of the films in review. All content used or discussed in these podcast episodes is the property of the respective owners and used under the Fair Use Act, Section 504C2, Title 17. Welcome to Filmstrip. I'm Jay, and I'm happy to welcome our special guest for this episode, April Riley, who you often hear from Tis the Podcast and several other episodes. April, thanks so much for jumping on Filmstrip. Thank you for having me. Tell folks a little bit about yourself. I am a mother of four, currently navigating um, the virtual schooling world with my own college, um, with four kids at home, and uh, just trying to survive. <laughs> not too, uh, not too fancy. Yeah. Tell folks the other podcasts that you appear on and stuff like that. Okay. Um, so I, I have appeared on a few other podcasts. Um, I like to refer to myself as uh, always bridesmaid, never the bride, um, because I don't have, I'm one of the few people out there that, that makes podcast rounds that doesn't have their own podcast. I actually might be the only one that I know of that doesn't have their own podcast. Um, I've been on a few episodes of the Tis the Podcast, um, the Totally Rad Christmas podcast and Christmas clatter. Uh, so I normally stick to the Christmas podcast, but this is um, this is my first foray into non-Christmas podcasting. I'm glad you decided to do that with us. We'll call you the special guest star that kind of makes the NBC rounds, you know, this is what everybody used to do. Right? <laughs> yes, so. that, that's perfect. I, I, I will never have my life together enough to um, be able to to run a podcast as well as, as people like yourself. So Wait, you assume I, I a lot to think I've got anything together to run this show. <laughs> I'll tell you that. Well, well, I definitely to, appreciate all you guys putting in the work and uh, let me do the fun part. Oh, absolutely. Well, today we are reviewing Labyrinth starring David Bowie, Jennifer Connelly, and all the Jim Henson Muppets directed by Jim Henson released in 1986. Didn't fare great at the box office, but definitely found a life on home video and home replay. And it's considered a cult classic in the fantasy genre right now. And April, as is usual, guest picked the movie. So why'd you pick this one? Uh, well, this is, this is a movie. Uh, I was born in 1983. So this movie came out um, before I, you know, have a, a conscious recollection of time. Um, so I grew up with this movie. Um, I don't remember a time without watching this movie. So I know, you know, early nineties, um, as early as maybe seven, eight years old, I, I, I started watching this and I watched it all growing up and, uh, my kids have watched it. Um, so yeah, it's been a solid 30 or so years that I've been watching this movie. That's awesome. I, I think it's neat to go back to something that you latched onto in childhood and then look at it with adult eyes. And I think it's great that you've got children who can now experience it with you too. But I have a, I have to imagine like today's children looking at Muppets has got to be a, like a different thing unless they watch a lot of PBS and Sesame Street or something. Right. And and I started my kids on this movie pretty young. Um, so I, I feel like, you know, maybe it's not so odd to them, but it's definitely not the uh, quality cgi kids these days are used to i know right like it's it's amazing you know 1986 i was 10 years old when this came out so it was right at the point when i was kind of walking out of that type of stuff i mean a big muppets fan as a kid obviously who wasn't you grew up you know when i did but i remember the thing about this that i always thought stuck in my head was jennifer Connolly's really cute that scary person chasing her around is not and i don't want nothing to do with that i didn't know who david Bowie was when i was 10 that took you know a long time for me to get onto him honestly not a huge fan respect his artistry and stuff but just not my kind of music not what i like to do which is weird because i love like musical theater and stuff and that's totally his bag but i i just never you know really landed for him and this one i it is so rare to find something that if I have seen it, I, I don't remember it, April. Like, I'm pretty sure I've seen pieces of this through the years, but I don't know that I ever sat and watched it, you know, front to back and certainly didn't, you know, pick up what it was about. But I think I knew what the basic story was. So it was, it was when you pitched it to me, I said, oh, this is going to be a blast because it's rare for me to be the newbie on the show. And, I, you know, what's it like to go back and revisit something from childhood now as an adult and put adult eyes on it and say, can I find things that I can still latch on to? Um, well, I, I feel like because it is so kind of ingrained for me, I've never really looked at it with a critical eye. Um, so it's like I've watched it or I've had it on when my kids are around, um, but I've never, you know, I, I've even gone as far like I've met Brent and Brian Han uh, Henson and I've met the voice of the worm, um, but I've never really like sat and looked at it 
from an adult point of view. Like there's just this automatic, I know I love this movie. Um, I know I'm going to force my kids to love this movie. So, um, you know, I just, it's just something that is kind of part of my background. Like, I don't know how to describe it. It's not even, I don't even get a nostalgic feeling when I watch it, but it's more just a natural process. Um, You know, I've got certain things in life that I did all through life and it's just something that came with me. And, uh, you know, so it's just a part of, part of life really. No, absolutely. And I've had this discussion with other things and other movies that we reviewed on this podcast. Kurt and I, years ago, before they were remaking any new ones, decided, let's just do the six Star Wars movies. Let's just do them. And he's younger than me, but he kind of grew up with Star Wars. I grew up with Star Wars, obviously. And I thought, can I go back to something that I love? and loved for years i mean i'm not like a you know mega fan but i love the movies i don't do the eu stuff so much but i love the movies but with the toys all that stuff can i go back and watch that and then give it any kind of a lens of well that worked that didn't what is that like you know whatever and it's it's fun to do it's a fun exercise mentally for me and that's why i so enjoy doing this because it's from it was made for 10 year old me but i'm certainly not that person anymore it's been 34 years since that happened so how can i appreciate this now what i think is funny about this or what is neat about this story is that it is about that idea of you have to grow up and kind of put away the childish things at some point but they can still be there for you is sort of the message of this movie and that's the funny part is um like it wasn't until recently that i have put enough thought into there being a message from this movie um you know it was just what I found out oh you know she was growing up and this is a childhood thing and it, it kind of struck me as a little weird because these things weren't always a part of her childhood they were only there that one single night uh, so I don't know how um you know that that really relates to um but yeah I never looked for a message I, I think that if you know, like with the Star Wars movies, I saw bits and pieces of the Star Wars movies here and there growing up, but I wasn't like a hardcore fan. I didn't watch it repeatedly. So if you're watching it now, I look at it from more of a critical because I don't have that attachment to it like I do this movie. So I can kind of understand why, you know, others might not have the same feelings that I do because it's just not ingrained within them. Well, it'll be fun to get into. So let's do a quick plot summary for folks that maybe haven't seen Labyrinth in a while, or if you're like me and you don't know if you ever saw it or not, I go through that and then we can get into talking about what, what happens in this movie and is there something. And I'm going to go on record right now and say something already that I love the worm character. I wish we had more of the worm. I was a very big fan of the worm, uh, but we'll come back to that. 16-year-old Sarah longs to live out the fantasy books she reads and be a part of them. Unfortunately, life gets in the way, and one night she absolutely loses it. Uh, When she's late to uh, watch her baby stepbrother, Toby, while her parents go out for the night, she wishes goblins would come take him away. I mean, who hasn't done that, right? Uh, Currently there. Yeah, they do. And Sarah is horrified. And when you see David Bowie in that makeup, how could you not be? She's given 13 hours to solve his labyrinth and retrieve her brother from Jareth the goblin king along the way she meets a dwarfish uh, man named hoggle who's no one can remember his name who helps her and also a giant beast named ludo through twists and turns and lots of other creatures that she meets along the way she realizes she not only regrets the wish but that little toby is more important to her than she had let on and it's time for her to grow up and take some responsibility for him in spite of the dangerous labyrinth jared has set her into he doesn't really mean her any harm which is an interesting twist in this story he just wants her undivided attention and sarah finally bests him by remembering the final line from the book that she's been reading which mirrors her journey and basically says that he doesn't have any power over a la the first nightmare on elm street movie sarah and toby are safely returned to home in time she tucks her baby stepbrother into sleep along with one of her favorite and prized possessions a uh, stuffed bear named lancelot and prepares to grow up a little while visions of her friends from the labyrinth say goodbye in the mirror but sarah says she knows while it's time for her to be a little more adult she can always have her childhood friends therefore when she needs them they all appear for a fun celebration in her room as jareth in the form of a barn owl flies off into the night and david boy's music rolls nowadays i think that um the whole goblin king and you know taking taking one of my kids to to you know off to become a goblin you know i never really got that until you are locked in in a house with them for nine months on end and it's like goblin king i can understand that i feel that now i feel it 
I'm sure you and a lot of other parents do and things yes. like that. Having only been the the uncle or whatever, I, I got left in charge of my two young nephews when they were quite young. And to say they have one speed doesn't really put the into context what those boys are like. And I love them to death. And they're much older now, so it's a lot easier to, to watch it. But when they were three and one and a half, and I'm sitting there going, I, what am I supposed to do with this? I don't know what to do with these. Um, it was a lot of fun. And when I finally realized that my choice was I have a lot of size on this. Them, and if I pick them up, they tend to like that. So we just went with that. And my back uh, paid for it later, but uh, my sanity was was held in trap. So yeah, I didn't have to call down the Goblin King. Mine are older. Um, some of them are bigger than me. My oldest is 15 and my youngest is six. Um, so they all school from home um, and I can't pick any of them up anymore. <laughs> um, so it's, uh, but yes, they do only have one speed and that's like, go. Um, yeah. yeah. And so it's, a, it was, I have three girls. So that, that I've got a couple of girls that just, they, from the moment they are awake and going, it is nonstop noise um, to the point where like my 11 year old daughter, my husband, when you a couple of weeks ago, he was like, I just, I just want to have 10 seconds of quiet, 10 seconds of quiet. So she goes one Mississippi to Mississippi <laughs> counting out loud until she can start resume normal conversation. Like that was, that was peak. That's, that's exactly what life is like for us. So it's, that, it gets overwhelming uh, because it's just constant. Like I can imagine, you know, I can appreciate the Goblin King, you know, just take him for a couple of <laughs> Well, yeah. And let's talk about that. Let's, let's do a look at Sarah here. Jennifer Conley, very young Jennifer Conley. I mean, I think I've watched her her whole career. Uh, who hasn't from you know, my generation? She really is kind of, She's really from my brother's generation. My brother's about five years older than me. And th- that's kind of his generation's Winona Ryder is what I say. Like Gen X, mm-hmm. the, the front end of Gen X had Jennifer Connelly. My version of Gen X, we had Winona Ryder. And so she she's just this, the girl next door uh, who became the woman next door um, in, in all the films she plays. And she plays some really complicated characters through her career. But what you see here and what I liked about it was she played this with a lot of heart. And there's times when she's very much a kid and there's other times when she's very much not a kid. She's a young woman. And I thought it was neat to watch her. I mean, she's essentially having to act against all these puppets and these voices off stage, all that stuff gets dubbed later. So I thought she did a really good job of sort of walking through all the, the labyrinth as it were of all these different little characters that she had to deal with. She really did. Um, And and like you had mentioned, uh, you know, talking to puppets, I, I mean, even as an adult, I don't think I would have the skill to be able to, you know, to, to talk to all of these, you know, fake things or things that aren't even there um, mm-hmm. behind screens that aren't even there, um, you know, and, and having the being able to react as if you're in a real, you know, a real situation. Um, so I really appreciate that she. At her, no, I'm not quite sure how old she was when she filmed this movie. She was actually 16 when she okay, made this. So she, so she was age appropriate. Um, so, you know, that's even more impressive that she was able to, you know, she's able to act with such depth when m- pretty much nothing is real. Yeah, yeah, it's it's pretty wild to watch. And I got to say, you know, the, the thing about this that I really love, and maybe it's because I'm old and I like practical effects, but I feel like a lot of this still holds up the way it looks and the colors. And, you know, I mean, I just watched this streaming or whatever, and it looked great. And I don't think they've gone back and done any kind of, you know, 4K restoration, color correction on this stuff. I mean, it is kind of what they filmed at the time. And it, it just goes to show you that good artistry holds up. And, and I think, um, I think the, I think the fact that it was, puppets and mm-hmm. not they didn't rely heavily on cgi um or whatever kind of cr- c- computer graphics they had back then um because you're still you still have a, an actual object it does it stands the test of time a little bit better whereas when you have any kind of computer effects you know we've come light years in 30 years so it's you know you could tell the difference and you can see the age in a movie when it's more computer generated but with the puppets i, I feel like it has stood the test of time yeah, I think the the most you know complicated looking thing that they had going on was the barn owl that we see sort of chasing her around the the park that she's sort of playing in with her big shaggy dog and you know she's doing kind of fantasy role play on her own she's just you know she's doing this by herself so it's like a one woman play or something and the the owl that's flying around chasing her the whole time and then it's the one that obviously we'll learn later is Jareth kind of watching over her and all this stuff I, that you can see the seams a little bit on it, but honestly, it wasn't enough to make me go like, what, what is that? You know, it looks cool. And I thought the way she played off of all that stuff. And then what's funny is she's in this, 
you know, again, this deep fantasy, like we catch her right in the middle of it or right at really at the end of it. And she's trying to remember this book that she's read so many times. She can recite every word of it, except the last line. She mm-hmm. can never remember the end of it. And then it's like an alarm goes off and she says, Oh, wait a minute. I got to go babysit my stepbrother. I, what am I doing? And she's to run back across the street and back into reality. And I thought that was just a neat, quick cut of juxtaposition of this girl's fantasy life back to her real life, which is, I'll be honest with you, it's kind of a fantasy life too. I mean, holy cow, that is a great looking house and parents that'll leave you alone when you're 16 to you know, babysit a kid. That's pretty amazing. Well, I think, um, you know, that when, when we're talking about, you know, being stuck between childhood and, and having to grow up, that's, that's your introduction to that idea. Um, you know, because she still wants to have fun and, you know, 16, even nowadays, my, my oldest is 15. Um, and I look at him and I'm like, let's give him a couple of more years of being a kid. And granted, yes, he is in charge of his younger siblings quite a bit. Um, but she's, she's there and it's, she's got to kind of make that quick, that, that, that quick pivot to back to responsibility. Um, you know, and it's, it's kind of a, you don't realize it at that age um but you realize it now you know as an adult that you kind of should have been dragged into adulthood kicking and screaming (laughs) exactly well and that's the thing is sarah is pushing back against everything that is telling her to grow up her stepmother of all people is telling her like you need to go out on dates why aren't you dating why aren't you doing why are you you know doing all this stuff with your stuffed animals and your dog and these books and all this and he's really pushing this grow up on you and that that seems so funny to me it also felt like so 80s and so like just that era of grow up and nowadays i mean i see more people like stay as young as you can as long as you can because trust me adulthood is lousy right and it's like you know i know we we see memes and everything nowadays talking about you know if somebody had told me that this is what i'd be you know what to expect as as an adult it's like you know so that's uh, she's got the right idea (laughs) being dragged kicking and screaming into adult responsibility so so stick with that kid yeah totally and and we meet you know her baby brother toby i've never seen a kid actor or a baby actor that they threw in there who i think they purposely tortured this poor child to make it cry as much as it did i mean i felt bad for the kid i'm like man you look tired and like you're done before the child labor laws yeah right well i think like his dad is like the set designer or something like that so they just took his well nowadays i think he (laughs) is grown up to be a set designer yeah. or he he worked yeah. on, and I think he worked on the new dark crystal that's um, right you know his his name is Toby in real life so I think he kind yeah. of continued that going uh, up until now yeah yeah he he followed in, in his father's footsteps and I mean I'm sure it was very much a who in the crew here has a kid young enough to pull this off so that we don't have to you know get doubles because most of the time when you get a kid like that you've got to have two of them right you got right you have twins in fact a lot of yeah. twins that's how a lot of twins got hired because it was switching the kids out Exactly. Yeah. So you, you poor little Toby just cries his poor eyes out the whole movie, except when David Bowie throws him a glass ball um, one time, which, yes, let's give the baby glass. That's a good idea. As a kid who swallowed a Christmas ornament and survived it, I can tell you it is something you can get through, but I don't recommend the experience for everyone. <laughs> I certainly don't don't remember it. But no, you watch Sarah with him and you can tell she's just totally put out by him. You know, completely not that she's just hateful, but she's just a selfish teenager, right? Like she's like, I don't want to deal with you. I was you know happy doing the other thing I was going to do. And I love that she just totally loses her mind and basically calls down like the thunder on him from the world beyond. Well, I think um I think there's an air of and I think it might be her half brother. Uh, I'm not sure if he's stepbrother or half brother, but I think there's that air of this is the new family. Um, and so, you know, without having her mother there, um, and it never really goes into backstory about what happened to her mother, but I'm guessing deceased. Um, so I, I think there's an air that she, it's not just I'm a selfish teenager, but there's this, you know, here's the wicked stepmother and this awful step, you know, awful little brother that. I am being forced into with a new family. Um, I think she's got, you know, I think that plays an element as well. Well, I mean, and what Toby really represents is 
real responsibility that eventually you have to take on as a teenager. Well, before you, you, you get out of high school, you get into college, all that kind of stuff. You're supposed to learn how to take care of something. I don't know if it was like this when you were still in school, April, they used to do this thing where they'd make everybody like take care of an egg for like two weeks or some I nonsense. had a, an actual baby. Uh, well, not an actual baby. Uh, <laughs> oh, wow. You were in high school and they, it was a doll. Um, so the doll would cry throughout and it had a key. Um, so it had a key in its back. I mean, it would cry when it was, it was hungry and it, it didn't like, you don't have to change a diaper or anything, but in order to simulate feeding it through the night, even through the night, you had to put the key in and you had to turn it and you had to keep it turned because it didn't, didn't stay turned on its own. Um, so it would keep crying. You would have to keep that key turned and this would be at two o'clock in the morning. You would have to keep that key turned until it stopped crying. And it had a, some kind of recording log within it that they printed out that log to see how, you know, did you feed the baby in a car? How long the baby actually, you know, they could check to see how long the baby was crying. Um, so it was definitely a fancier setup than an egg. Oh, wow. Well, yeah, but still, the, the lesson is the same, right? It's supposed to yes. teach you all this responsibility, which you are you are never ready for, I don't think. And, and no. I mean, you have four kids. You would know better than me. But that, it's it's such a ridiculous exercise. But it, as an adult now I, and someone who has to kind of create these kind of things for people sometimes at work, I'm like, I don't know a better way to teach it either. Like, you know, some, the best way to teach, honestly, is to be thrown in the middle of something. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of what happens to Sarah here. I mean, what I'll give this movie credit it for is the economic storyline of it i mean it's it's an hour and 40 minutes long and it's really about an hour and 33 when you take out the credits and all the stuff and it's fast i mean we get right into the wish and the goblin king and the whole bit within 10 minutes and that's pretty quick to launch us right into the meat of the story yeah like i said you don't get any kind of backstory on her um or how her family you know the family that she's got now the stepmother does make it known that she is the stepmother um but other than that there's no you don't get any type of backstory at all you just get that moment and from then on what happens happens yeah we do the whole alice in wonderland kind of adventure mm -hmm. here and and it's a good time to talk about david bowie's jareth the goblin king first off i told you my feelings about bowie where are you on david bowie um, so I'm the opposite. So when you talk about, um, you know, say Sarah or um, Jennifer Connelly being being cute and, and liking her, and you know, I love David Bowie in this movie, uh, which is not normally, you know, somebody I would gravitate towards. But he just, uh, you know, I always say, he, he just oozes his sexuality in this Big movie. Time. Um, yeah. And he's, uh, you know, with the with the tight pants and just the, uh, the there there's an some element of domination in there I guess if you will that I can appreciate um but yeah I love David Bowie in this movie um I've always kind of erred towards the eclectic um if you will so I like David Bowie's music I like his style like his personality um and he's also been something that's been there all through my childhood you know I had a weird childhood my parents are kind of hippies so I grew up with you know, my music growing was David Bowie the B-52s um so I was very familiar with him very cool so, and to be clear i 10 year old me thought jennifer Connolly was cute old me watching this is like good actress you know I, the, david bowie always right. scared me though just because of the whole androgyny because it was just so opposite of like where i grew up and stuff and not knowing like what the story was and all that i think i i learned to appreciate his shtick later on as i got into oddly enough professional wrestling and you get to watch like the craziness that that can be i know that's something you're into as well and you mm -hmm. see the theatrics of that and you realize like oh it's just part of the show it's part of what he does years ago back in the the archives you can go listen to our review of the prestige and when david bowie's playing tesla is awesome and he just morphs into so many things and you, i've seen him in a lot of stuff now through the years and i've really come to appreciate him as a performer and i don't mm -hmm. really just want to label him as an actor i think he was just an artist and a performer and yes his his character here is so strange because he's supposed to be menacing and weird but he's also supposed to be like this i don't know unbridled sexuality he's like let's say he's not only wearing the tight pants april like you, you there's a lot we know about the man from the tight pants in a very uncomfortable scene uh dancing around that child with all the muppets i don't know what we were thinking at that moment but th there's that and then you also see sort of what he says to her at the end when they're chasing each other through the mc escher you know stairs and everything it's i don't know i i like the character though because so many times the antagonist in these stories is like the evil wart ridden, you know, 
king of your whatever and in here like he represents the ultimate of the fantasy land that all i want you to do is just be lost in your fantasy sarah and she's like i can't do that anymore because i control the story you don't and that's the thing it's like he is not a, a bad guy he is he, he's got things wrong and he's misguided in the sense that he believes uh you know this is a logical solution to her problem uh but the fact that he you know he doesn't wish to hurt her technically he doesn't wish to hurt her brother she he's just going to turn it into a goblin um you know he's just trying to relieve all the stress in her life and make things easier for her um you know he so he, he sees it as him doing her a favor um so it's hard to look at him to, to me he was never scary because he was not somebody malicious he was just misguided yeah and yeah he's not evil per se he just lives in a different world literally than she does and has its own rules and i I did get a trick out of the when she's doing the whole wish for the goblin thing and the goblins are behind the mirror i love this whole motif that this world exists just behind the mirror and you have the whole little horde of goblins going like did she say it did she say it enough like they're just waiting for it and I, I, i had a lot of fun with that it reminded me of some of my favorite muppet stuff you know i'm i'm a big fan of the muppets all that i mean i grew up with all that like if we were talking about the great muppet caper or something i'd be marking out the same way because i love that and i especially love it when it's a bunch of like the nameless muppets on the side just doing a gag and the goblins are kind of doing that and they're like oh yes another one of us is going to be created and you got to think like are all of these like castaway children here that, that he is you know converted that's, that's a very good point it's like has he kidnapped quite a few children in the past if so where are the other sisters if you know is this a pattern um so how does this work but that's uh, again in the uh you know kind of you you don't have any backstory on it so yeah it's kind of why i wonder like if this story if you were to do it now if, if this was brand new or whatever, this would not be a movie. This would be introduced as like a series and it would be multiple episodes, probably about 30, 40 minutes a piece be on something like HBO or Amazon would do it. Maybe even Netflix, something like that. And I, I don't know. I just think you could, you could expand this universe because it's certainly expandable. There's a lot to play off of and tell here. But I'm not, I'm not sure how well it would do nowadays. Um, I think the, the big, uh, and I, I can't really say popularity now because it's still pretty fringe. Um, you know, it, it's got pop, it's popular in certain circle, you know, pop culture circles that are, you know, into that, but it's not mainstream cult classic, um, you know, and half the people you talk to aren't even going to know what it is. Um, and I don't think like the Dark Crystal, when they rebooted that on Netflix, that didn't do too well, did it? No, it didn't. It did not okay, land. So I, I have a feeling that if they re- attempted something like this, it's just the wrong time period. Um, so I think that the, the time period that it fell into it, it was perfect for it, um, you know, but I don't think it would survive now if it were released like that That, that's an excellent point and a very fair one i wonder how it would have done as a series back then like you know fraggle rock or something like that yes good point good point yeah that that might have worked better but it you know it is what it is i what'd you make of the bowie music in this too because it this movie's a musical yeah i love the bowie music in this um you know it's it's catchy um and it's 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 very on point for david bowie um and it that's always, I think, one of my favorite things about this movie. It's like I could still sing these songs, uh, you know, because they are that they're memorable. Yeah, he's got such a the voice that he has is it 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 only sounds like him, mm-hmm. you know. And I think it's the only way I know how to describe it. I think it's the the highest compliment you can pay to any artist or any singer is that when you hear their stuff come on, you know it's them. Exactly. There's no one that's going to sound like that. And Mm -hmm. Bowie's deep and kind of resonating, almost whisper talking voice while he's doing is uh, it's really, really hypnotizing is is the way to say it like and i think that's what it's supposed to be is you know like magic dance or whatever it's supposed to be like this way to sort of keep the kid calm while your sister's running through the labyrinth and it's also a gag for the audience to play off of as well i mean that's the thing all the muppet films and and jim henson stuff it's always laced as their stories but they're also musicals at the same time and that's a delicate balance to make but they do a good job with it here and and even as somebody who's not a bowie music fan i would never deny that he definitely has a style and it's all over this movie 
Now, I wonder how much of a hand he had in the production of the music for this. It's like, did he write the songs um, or were they just handed to him? That's that's one thing I'm, I'm not sure on. And I'd be curious to find out he, whether that was his contribution to it or if this was just, you know, him. And if he, you know, more power to him if they he didn't write any of these songs because he did them so well. All the vocal stuff, anything with vocals is Bowie. Everything else is Trevor Jones, the, the, uh, uh, not cinematographer, the composer, Trevor Jones does everything okay. else. So if, it, if it's Bowie singing, Bowie wrote it. Uh, and then there's, okay. there's one where they, they, um, collaborated where Jones wrote the music and Bowie, you know, uh, did the lyrics for it. But if it's, if Bowie's singing it, he wrote it. Otherwise it's Trevor okay. Jones's music. And, and that would make perfect sense because it's, yeah. it's the, the music itself is very, is very David Bowie. Yeah, very much so. But it's neat to watch it blend too, because Bowie has such a unique style, but then to find somebody else that can like play in that era, that 80s Euro pop, you know, synth pop stuff that he had going on with a little bit of like art house experimentation and stuff. I mean, it's all, it's what led to like, you know, nowadays EDM and all that kind of stuff. Um, it, I mean, Bowie's the grandfather of all that, all that yeah. kind of music. To watch him masquerade around in this, I mean, ridiculous get up. We've talked about the tight pants, the hair. It's almost like this Tina Turner thing he's got going mm-hmm. on. I don't know. It's very huge. A lot of Aquanet, I'm sure, uh, to hold that up. And yeah, I'm pretty sure that was probably a wig. <laughs> you know, I don't know though. Bowie, eh, you never know. So. That's very, um, that's it. You know, that the ability for that hair to stand on. And I, maybe not because my husband has the type of hair that uh, I, I call him Iceman because he looks like, <laughs> he looks like uh, you know, about, from Top Gun, where it just stands yeah, straight up, just the, short. Otherwise, it just goes like this everywhere. And I'm, you know, I've always been curious. So maybe uh, in, in that sense, it could happen. That's also. I'm pretty sure uh, uh, Tom Kazansky's hair in Top Gun can open doors uh, by itself because that, yeah, that character had some stiff, stiff locks in that that one. Gosh, yes. uh, but 1986 movie, by the way, as well. So see, we're right in the time period. It's perfect. It, it probably was a wig. You're thinking about it, but it's well done. It's what I'm going to say. Like he, the mm-hmm. seams on it are not noticeable and that's one thing when you watch stuff nowadays on high def you know televisions or whatever you watch the old movies like this you can usually see the strings you can see all the seams because they unless they've gone back and taken all that out and you really can't hear like the the puppetry work and all the makeup and stuff is really really well done yes and and it blends it blends in well together to take somebody uh you know i think this lends to uh david bowie's you know you said, you know, performance, um, not necessarily acting experience, but the performance itself, um, you know, how they just managed to take these Muppets in a sense. And, you know, you know, I'm not, I don't have such a strong history in the Muppets, but to take something like the Muppets and turn, you know, flip them in a way to where not only are they foreboding in a way, but they fit very well with David Bowie. It's just, it, it's uh, the way it all meshes together something that i really love no it does and i mean and as we meet our different puppeted characters and things i mean hoggle's the one we spend the most time with i think that really has a lot to do that's brian henson do, doing you know a lot of the work and the voice they got a uh, a person to to work in the bodysuit to walk around but would you make a hoggle because i i look at that character and i'm like that's that's a precursor to a lot of like the favorite stuff everybody loves in harry potter and several other kinds of you know fantasy type stories that are more modern is the one that i dislike you know in terms of the aesthetic of him is that the the bug i don't want to say bug me but you know how you were a little bit afraid of jareth that was hoggle for me because you know with Mm -hmm. the big bulbous nose and just the way his skin looked and the way his eyes his eyes had that uh had a quality of uh the animatronics at Chuck E. Cheese back in the day. Yes, yes, very trollish in a way. Right. So, so he and and you know he was a troll. You know he was more or less supposed to be a troll. So, um, you know it, it fits well. But he was the one that creeped me out the most. Um, I didn't like the look of him. He just, you know, I just didn't like. It. Oh, that's funny because I mean, I, yes, he's off-putting as all get out. But I thought he's exactly like the foil against this this teenage girl, and he. He has no reason to help her other than he just likes her. He thinks she's cute and he kind of feels for her. And maybe he's seen this happen a number of times now. And he's like, yeah, I'm going to let this one, you know, get through the, get through the maze, through the shortcut you know, somehow. He's going to help her out. 
I think, well, I think at first it was the lore of just the jewelry that she was giving him. Um, but then you see him, you know, as he spends a little more time and he, he realizes, okay, you know, she's in here you know, trying to get her brother back. Uh, you know, maybe, maybe she's not so bad. He, he kind of has that turn of, uh, you know, you see him develop the conscious within, you know, within the movie. Um, you know, so when he's supposed to give her the poison peach, uh, you know, he goes from you're not not really caring to you know, and just being after the jewels that she's giving him to uh, I genuinely feel bad about this. Uh, so it's fun to watch him, his character develop through this. Yeah, he actually has an arc through it or whatever, because Jareth mm-hmm. constantly pops in and going, are you really helping this girl? And he threatens him. He's going to throw him in the with the bog of, uh, you know, interminable stench or whatever. Yeah. And you know, he goes on and on about this. He has his own fears. And so that's why I thought he was a fully realized character, that he wasn't just, you know, male stop on the road. He had lived in the, this was his world and he didn't mind sharing it, showing it and, you know, showing her what to avoid in it, even though he had no other reason to other than she was bribing him and he kind of felt for her plight. Yeah. But he, you know, he, he feels for her plight a little bit more as they kind of grow to know each other. And he realizes, you know, maybe there's a little bit more because he seems to be very selfish in the beginning and self-centered. And then he sees this girl who is in here risking all this awful stuff um, that just keeps going and keeps persevering in a completely selfless way. So I think that kind of has an effect on him as well. Yeah, I mean, that's a motif in a lot of children's stories, right? Is that you meet this stranger along the way who wants nothing to do with you, is not going to help you, but eventually does give in and they become like your best help. They become your your right hand, as it were, and then they're fighting for you. I I liked the trope. I thought it worked out well. Uh, big old Ludo, I, I got a kick out of that. I mean, I, I, I was a big fan of like, you know, Big Bird, Snuffleupagus, all that stuff. So the big lumbering kind of brute. I, I did feel very Chuck E. Cheese off of that. Or maybe if you've ever been to Six Flags in Georgia, there's like a monster mansion thing. He looked like a couple of things out of that. You know, it's it's very much that. But, you know, uh, when she helps him out of the trap, he's in, he's like, okay, thanks. He's just a big lug. Right. I think this is, you know, kind of, you see all of these, when you talk about motifs, um, you know, you see this is, don't judge a book by its cover. Uh, you know, because here's this big, horrible, you know, scary looking beast that, you know, everything else is attacking because they think it's it's dangerous. And then when you turn out, he's just this big oaf that, you know, he's a big giant puppy. Um, so, you know, that that lends itself well to the next, you know, kind of trope of judging based on what you see. Exactly. Yeah. Because I mean, that's that's the other thing, too, is you got to remember, there's always an educational component to what Jim Henson's trying to teach you. It's buried underneath a lot of Monty Python humor uh, sometimes, mm-hmm. but it and, you know, the writers, you're part of the Python crew, too. So there's no doubt that that's where that comes from. But there's always a lesson involved. Right. It's a. Uh, uh, a moment where you want people to learn something and you want the characters to learn something and demonstrate that they're learning it. And I mean, look, in in real life, Sarah has that trusty old sheepdog, right? And so it's no doubt why they would give her one to accompany her along the journey, even though she gets to meet the the old sheepdog later on in the journey, which I thought was fun. I think it's, it's part of the reason she realizes I've read this story. I've memorized this story. I'm living this story, uh, which was kind of cool. I, I like that revelation that she figured that out. But it all starts with she has these companions around her at all times. And these are just the this world's manifestation of what those would look like. Yeah. So Sarah has her people. She's walking through all this. Jareth is throwing her, you know, left and right, all kinds of curves. Would you make all the traps and all the troubles she keeps getting into along the way? You know, maybe I can tie my, um, you know, my my anxiety to, you know, you hear like, (laughs) oh, I can trace my anxiety back to, you know, that that uh, top game that popped out at you when you were a kid. Uh, Maybe it's this that it's, you know every turn like the when the worm sends her one way and she's like oh you know let me go and he should have gone the other way or when the hands are going up and down it's like why would you choose down <laughs> why down you know um you know so those I, I feel might lend to why I'm such an anxious adult <laughs> I mean I think that's part of it though right is and what you realize Sarah does I mean, one of my favorite ones are the door knockers where one of them's got the knocker in the ears so you can't really hear the other one's got it in the mouth so you got to take that one out and you ask it something you put it back it's like learn how to solve a puzzle and people always often ask like how am I ever really going to use the algebra I learned and all this stuff you're actually going to learn all the game stuff that you learn how to do all the puzzle solving helps you think critically and what I love to 
about is you watch Sarah realize like, wait a minute, I know how to solve this. And she just sort of works through it and processes through her own problems the whole time. It's also, it lends again to the the motif of I'm living the book I've read a million times idea. Right. So, which is neat, but, but I liked watching her solve all the puzzles and then the puzzles were usually a good bit of interjected humor in between all the tension scenes. And, um, you know, it, it, it's funny, you see her, uh, she starts cocky with the puzzles, like, I know the answer to this, um, you know, and then as she realizes every time I think I've known the answer to this, and I've been cocky about it, and I refuse to think about it, I've been wrong. Um, so you, you, you see that revelation within those riddles and those those tricks that they throw at her that things aren't always what they seem, um, and to pay a little bit more attention and to think about things a little bit more opposed to automatically thinking you have, you have the answer for everything, which is every teenager on earth. So. Right. I mean, yeah. Is it, is it, I mean, you have a teenager, right? You, you know what it's like, and you remember what it's like to be a teenager. You exactly. do, you don't mean to come off that way. You just realize, you know, a lot more than people give you credit for. So you get off on the hubris of, I know all this already, but you, you really don't know. Cause the thing is, is knowledge does not equal experience mm-hmm. is the lesson. And it's knowing how to apply knowledge that builds experience. Right. It's the, you know, kind of the knowledge versus wisdom. You may know something, um, you know, it's always like you may know that tomato is a fruit, but, you know, wisdom is not putting in a fruit salad kind of thing. Exactly. Um, you know, so you see that that knowledge versus wisdom and how she's got to kind of come to grips with her own humility and, and, and being a little more um, realistic with the situation. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, that's the fun part of watching her grow up in front of us here. Because uh, this story is supposed to be about a girl that needs to kind of grow up, quote unquote, and we're watching her do it while also hanging on to the things that are important to you. And I mean, th- the biggest thing is when we get to the the big end where she's at the castle and she's finally in the room that's got all the stairs that are going up and down. And, you know, again, it's modeled off of the, the Escher relativity lithograph that everybody's, you, if you're a freshman in college, you had it on your wall, you know, all that kind of stuff. You could see those. And I, I love that it's it's another puzzle for her to solve. And what she realizes is that if I just keep running around these stairs, I'm never going to catch my brother. Like it's meant to keep you in the rat race, right? And there's a lesson in that. It's like sometimes you just have to stop and go, hold on, what's the actual problem here? And you watch her process that and do that. And that's when she gets to confront Jareth one-on-one. And I thought that was great. I mean, I dropped it in the plot summary. It reminded me of the end of the first Nightmare on Elm Street movie where you know Nancy just wishes Freddie away, but that's what happens in the monster. Sometimes you realize that it's not real and you can walk. Right. And it's almost like a full circle, like where we see at the beginning, there's a cockiness of I know everything and that messing her up. And then that progresses to, you know, using a little bit more constraint and thinking the things through um, to all the way having the answer once again. And just believing not so much arrogance, but more confidence within yourself that, you know, I have the answer. I hold the power here. Um, You know, so it's fun to watch that come in, in a in a circle that benefits her. Yeah. And what you make of the thing that Jareth is offering her, basically, is you can eternally live in your dream world if you'll just, you know, give yourself over 100 percent to me. Uh, like I said, nowadays that does not seem such like like such a horrible offer. Um, and I yeah. <laughs> like if David Bowie showed up, and, you know, granted that's not going to happen. But if David Bowie showed up at my door and offered to take my kids for me, and he could just take care of me, I would accept that offer in a heartbeat. Um, <laughs> yeah, no. Um, David you know, Bowie shows up. Just you've been playing with the Ouija board again. And right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think I've yeah I've been in quarantine a little bit too long. If David yeah. Bowie shows up, yeah. Um, but, you know, I, I remember, you know, kind of growing up, I don't know, there was, you know, as, as a female and having those those fairy tales, you know, kind of sell, sold to you growing up, this was my fairy tale in a weird, in that weird way. Um, you know, so while some people had their Prince Charming and, and Cinderella and the Disney movies, you know, this was more my speak in terms of that would be David Bowie offering to take care of me forever. If I, you know, just let him dominate, you know, or let him control or, um, you know, that was my Prince Charming. (laughs) Right. But I mean, that's exactly what he is to her is he's like, I'm not trying to hurt you. I was never going to let anything bad happen to you. I'm just trying to make your fantasy 
become real and it can if you'll just stay in this fantasy land but she realizes like but it's not real like as much as i would love to i can't and i and i do need to i do care about this kid even though i like i don't i do i care about toby i want him to be safe and i want him to be happy and i want him to grow up and to experience all the things i've experienced and i think the thing that she realizes in it is that instead of Toby being her enemy or someone who's taking attention away from her, this is somebody that she gets to relive that childhood with again, as he gets to live it. And I think it's, it shows how much she matures um, because it, it, I liken it to taking a vacation. Um, I, I do in a normal world, I take vacations without my kids. Um, and it's wonderful to have that four or five days without my kids and just, you know, being able to do whatever I want to do. Um, you know, without having them fighting or crying or, you know, complaining or with the attitude. Um, but at the end of those four or five days, I, it's time to go home. I know it's time to go home. I'm not staying wherever I'm at. I'm not going to run away completely. So I think, you know, that shows the maturity on her part that she realizes, okay, in the short term, that's, that, that may sound great because I don't want to listen to this kid cry and I just want to be a kid. But in the long term, that's not, that's not reasonable. That's not okay. Um, yeah, so so it shows how she matures. Yeah, absolutely. And she does. And she makes that decision. They get back home. And what I love is that at the end of it, where everything's been put back right, at, you know, the last minute dad, mom come in, you hear, yeah, everything's fine. And she's like taking things down off of her mirror and she's trying to like put away some of the kids stuff, right? Because she's like, okay. And, he, and I love how you know, Hoggle and these other people pop up behind her like, bye, Sarah. You know, like it's your childhood waving goodbye to you. And what I, what really you know, touched me and just gave me a little bit of a pang is there's stuff from my childhood that I still watch and you know, talk about and think about and stuff. And I, I am so appreciative that I haven't just let that go through the but years. But at the same before. time, this, this movie kind of teaches you it's okay not to completely yeah. let it go. Because yeah. as she's speaking, they're like, you know, we have to go away now, but should you need us? Uh, basically saying, hey, if you ever need uh, uh, to, to be a kid again, we're here and that's okay. Um, you know, so it, as she's taking things down and she's growing up a little bit, they're still there saying, hey, we might not be here as much, but it's still okay for us to come back every now and then. So I, you know, I appreciate that because, you know, I, I do a, a lot of big kid stuff. I love, you know, I love wrestling. I love going to Disney World, you know, without my kids. Um, so I like doing a lot of those things and it's perfectly okay not to let those go. My mortgage is still paid, but I go to Disney World as an adult, so. Yeah, right. And and I think that's the lesson here and what Jim Henson's whole life was really about was mm-hmm. you can always be a little bit of a kid and maybe you should because it will soften all of the 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 stuff that lays on top of you that's real life if you'll just give into your childhood a little bit and the things that you love whether it was playing jacks in the backyard you know in the dirt with your friends or if it was just riding your bike or taking a walk or if it was playing with your stuffed bears and watching movies you like and stuff like that there's there's something really sweet and innocent about that that i think we can all find an escape in we all have one and that's why i love the message of this is that it's okay to do and what i love that the jareth is watching that like going okay i'm not completely out of her life and he just kind of flies off into the moonlight i i enjoyed that yeah i think it wraps it up nicely um you know so to, to where yes she, you, we, she knows it's time to move on but she's always got her, her her comfort there with her yeah and they have a big party at the end and we get some more david bowie music so yes yeah, and it's like how do the parents not hear that <laughs> I mean, you know, when you're on in your old fantasy land, though, that could just be her head. You know, we we don't know. I mean, I, I love the play of that and how that works. And well, April, we're at the part of the podcast where it's time to give final thoughts, recommendations, and popcorn ratings. So, what are yours for Labyrinth? So, I my final thoughts on this. Um, you know, I think this is this is kind of a timeless movie that um, if your your tastes are a little bit eclectic, I think that kids these days are going to enjoy. Um, just as much as they did 30 years ago. I don't think it's going to be ever mainstream, Um, but, you know, the people who are going to appreciate it, I think, whether they're from the 90s or from the 80s or, you know, from the 2000s, there's enough to appreciate there, and it does stand the test of time. As my popcorn rating, I would give it a large popcorn. Um, I don't think it's the best thing I've ever seen in my life. Um, Obviously, you know, like I said, it's kind of a, a fringe movie, Um, But it's one of, you know, it's always going to be one of my favorites. 
So I'm always going to, like I kind of said earlier, and you know, I forced it on my kids. I'm always going to hype this movie up because it stayed with me for 30 years. So, you know, anything that stays with me that long, <laughs> it's got to be a good thing. It's obviously something about it that made it last for you. I got to tell you, I'm so glad I finally watched this in, in entirety and saw all of it and got to experience it for what it is. And I, I tried to think back, like, would I have really appreciated this if 10 year old, 11 year old me had watched it when it was on Showtime or whatever. And I don't know that I would have because of just where I was in life and sort of you know, things like that. But I realize now, like, there's just so much heart to this. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's sad to me that it wasn't a, you know, a hit or anything. And I know Henson really struggled with that for years because he thought he really had something and it just didn't happen. But I, I liken this to the way the thing from John Carpenter has grown on people through the years. Carpenter makes a joke all the time. He said, I love it when people come up to me at conventions and tell me they love the thing. And I say back to them the same thing. Where were you when that movie was released? Because nobody liked it when I made it, but I'm glad you like it now. And if Jim Henson were still here, I think he would say the same thing. And Brian Henson certainly says that too. It's, I'm glad you like it now and that it does have its lasting effect. And I think there's something neat about the fact that this is a niche thing. It's not for everybody. And that's okay. That's cool because it's neat to have stuff that is just yours. So I think it's so cool that you, you've been able to share that, that you share it with your kids and that you, you, you tell other people about it too. I think that's the fun part of having something that is yours that maybe not everybody else got into that you can, you can share with them. So it's a lot of fun. It goes by real quick. Conley's great in it. David Bowie is David Bowie in it. The music's fun. The puppets look great. I mean, I've talked about all that stuff. It's definitely a large popcorn. I'll join you in that large popcorn. I think it's a really fun movie. And definitely if you haven't checked it out or if it's been a long time since you had certainly worth going back and taking a revisit with and looking at april thanks so much for coming and being a part of the film strip podcast tell folks how they can follow you on social media if they want to do so i'm pretty active on twitter um you can find me at april and pj on twitter um fair warning i talk mostly about wrestling on twitter uh because i have a big wrestling fan <laughs> other than that i don't have a huge social media presence out to, outside of you know my the personal stuff but yeah twitter is where i go to Share the thoughts that I can't share with my mother. Well, look in the show notes. You'll see April's Twitter in there. Definitely worth a follow. And yeah, if you're into wrestling, this is definitely the person to follow when, you know, one of the big events is happening and stuff like that. Cause it's, you know, you'll get good reaction from it. It's always a lot of fun. Again, thanks for being a part of Filmstrip, April. Folks, thanks so much for listening to this episode of Filmstrip. Go to filmstrippodcast.com. You'll find links to where all of our podcasts are found. Uh, Spotify, Apple, Google, we're all over the place. Um, where you find our shows our extensive archives are all there but if you really want to get through the archives go to our letterboxed page just look for film strip podcast and you'll see all of our uh, titles there all you know nearly 300 episodes you can sort them by the year they were released you can sort them by the year that we you know did the episodes and each one of them has a show link in it that'll take you to where you can download the podcast you can follow the show social media at film strip pod on facebook twitter instagram that's where we do lots of fun stuff if you follow our facebook page you get to be a part of our once a month Facebook lives. That's kind of how we've been doing them so far is once a month. So you come and hang out with some of our friends. We had Tis the Podcast on back in December. We've got other friends coming up throughout the year. We appreciate your support. So until next time, for April Riley, I'm Jay. Thank you for listening to Filmstrip. Thank you for listening to Filmstrip. You can find more episodes on our website, filmstrippodcast.com. The Filmstrip theme music is produced and performed by Frozen Lake 121. All content used or discussed in these podcast episodes is the property of the respective owners and used under the Fair Use Act, Section 504C2, Title 17.